Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where author and China analyst Mark O'Neill joins me as we speed our way through more than a century of Hong Kong's colonial history. Next week, it will be 20 years since the handover. But how did the colony of Hong Kong come about? What treaties was it based on? Hong Kong did last under British administration until 1997, but Mark argues that there were several times when history could have gone in another direction. Well, we start, of course, in the first Opium War, in which Britain wanted to balance the trade with China, and Britain had very little which China wanted. It was buying a lot from China. China demanded payment in silver, which uh, was available, but Britain didn't want to s- to use its silver to pay China. So they want they wanted to find a commodity w- which they could sell to China, and that commodity was opium. So, what were the British buying from China at that time? What were what was being imported to the UK? Well, tea, silk, porcelain. I mean, in the early part of the Qing Dynasty, China was a very important uh, global power. She had 30% of global GDP, I think, as late as 1800. That's before the Industrial Revolution. So she she had many items that the West wanted. And she she is a huge country, as you know, so she was largely self-sufficient in food and uh, manufactured goods. So there was very little that Britain or the West had that China wanted. So the British wanted to reverse this trade imbalance. And what about, you know, when we look at opium, I mean, what was particular about... China and opium, or was opium uh, used as uh, for pleasure? I mean, obviously addiction, but for pleasure in UK, in Europe, in other places, or was it something specific to China? Well, opium was grown in India. India was under British control, so here was a product which Britain had a large amount of, and it saw opium as a, a product with demand that is elastic. I mean, the more people smoke, the more you could sell. So it was little use in China at that time. And the Chinese government made abundantly clear that they didn't want this, that opium was illegal uh, in, in China, and they sent this very famous official, Lin Zexu, to Guangzhou, and his job was to ban the opium trade. So he confiscated opium that was in these Guangzhou warehouses, and he publicly burnt it so everyone could see. He went to Macau, he, he told them, the, the Portuguese officials there, you must not cooperate with the British, you must not allow opium to be tra- traded. So the Chinese position could not have been more clear. He wrote a, a wonderful letter to Queen Victoria in which he said, you ban this in your own country for public use. It, it was available for medical use but not for public use. How, how can you possibly allow your government and your officials to tell us that we should allow it when it's banned in your own country. A very beautiful letter. So morally, China was in a very high position. But that, of course, did not deter the British trade officials. And they put the pressure on the British government to allow them to start the war. And so exactly what was the war about? Well, the British side provoked Mm. the Chinese side the Chinese side retaliated, and then the British officials said this was a provocation by China, we have to react, and the British government approved. So once the war began, of course, Britain was in a much stronger position because she had munitions, an army that was far stronger than the Qing army. So once the war began, Britain won it very easily. And also the territory of Hong Kong. So 
the result of the war was that China ceded the island of Hong Kong, just the island, to Britain for perpetuity. So what does ceded actually mean? Because these different agreements have different terms, lease or ceded. Ceded is permanent. Ceded is permanent, but you see the Chinese view of the Kuomintang or the communist government is that it was an unequal treaty. It wasn't negotiated between two equal partners. So let us assume that Britain had not agreed to hand Hong Kong back and said we're going to keep it. If this case had gone to The Hague, the international courts in The Hague, to decide whether or not Hong Kong was British or Chinese, that's a very complicated decision because it was agreed by the Chinese government of that time to give this island to, to Britain forever. But as I said, the Chinese view is it was not a fair treaty, it was not a negotiated treaty, it was done under violence, and therefore Chinese governments have never accepted it. Now, Lord Palmerston, who was Prime Minister, he regarded it as a barren rock, but there were aspects of Hong Kong that were exceedingly useful to the British Yes, it's not an accident it was Hong Kong because before British seamen had done explorations of the Chinese coast and they had concluded that this was the best harbour in southern China. So, as we know, the harbour, Victoria Harbour, has been the greatest asset of Hong Kong ever since then. And it immediately became a very valuable port. And Macau went into immediate decline because all the trade moved from Macau to Hong Kong. So the British were very smart in, in, in taking Hong Kong because it, it, had, it brought with it this wonderful harbour that they've been u- using ever since. So the British start with this island. And then how does this territory expand? Britain is a colonial power, of course, so she wants more, more land. And, and the people that come to Hong Kong and develop businesses here, of course, they want more land too. So in the Second Opium War in the early 1860s, then Britain got more. She got Kowloon up to Boundary Street, and that was also ceded in perpetuity. So that was what we might say is a natural growth of Hong Kong, because Hong Kong Island is small, so they just wanted more territory, and they wanted more births, and they wanted more places to develop industry and commerce. So that's what happened in, in the second, after the Second Opium War. So by 1860, in the Second Opium War, the British colonial government has also acquired Kowloon, that's uh, to expand their territory, and that was also a territory that was ceded. And then we move to the end of the 19th century. Yes, well now, the third part of Hong Kong that was given to the British was the new territories and 200 islands around Hong Kong Island. And this was a negotiated agreement, so at least it wasn't under war. And the reason for this was that military technology had advanced by now and the British argument was to defend Hong Kong we need more space, we need more territory because the ability of warships and artillery has expanded. She was able to get a much larger piece of territory on land and then the 200 islands and of course the negotiations were not equal but at least it wasn't an agreement as a result of war. But this was different to the other two because this was a lease. So this is 1898. Yes, so the lease is 99 years, so that runs out in 1997. But I'm sure the people that made the agreement thought 99 years means forever. Oh, really? Well, because nobody knows what's going to happen in 99 years' time. But at that time, Britain was a very strong power and China was a very weak one, so... 
I'm sure the British officials thought that China would never be able to get it back. So that was 1898, the uh, second convention of Beijing in which the UK acquired the new territories and 200 surrounding islands. So those 200 surrounding islands include Chengchou, Lantau, Lama. Yeah, and I think where you live. So it greatly improved the quality of of Hong Kong because it it gave a much larger area and... uh, so we don't, we don't only have the urban area, we have many rural districts. We have the rural land of new, new territories, so yes, of course, it was, it was a great addition to the colony. Where were these negotiations done? In Beijing? Yes, they were, they were carried out in Beijing, yes. You've spent 30 years writing about and living in part of the time in China. These days, how is it seen? Well, the word which is used by the Kuomintang officials and also the communist officials is unequal treaty, which is they were not negotiated between two countries willingly and uh, on, on an equal basis. So that's always been the Chinese position, that these Hong Kong, New Territories, Kowloon, all belong to China, and they always have belonged to China. The people who live there are Chinese. They don't belong to some other entity, and therefore we should get them back in the course of time. That's the view of Beijing. That was 1898, the second convention of Beijing. By acquiring the new territories in 1898, the UK has completely expanded the territory that it has. But that all becomes under real risk when we look at the Second World War, because the Japanese military invade in December 1941. As you know, this was, for Britain, the third year of the war. So the war begins in September 1939. Hitler overruns continental Europe. Britain is fighting the Nazis on its own, and it is completely unable to defend Hong Kong in, in a proper manner. It does not have the materials, the ships, the, the manpower to do it. So the Japanese invasion of Hong Kong is very quick. Uh, the Allied soldiers who are here resist, but uh, it's overwhelming force. So the territory falls very quickly to Japan. And I think this is important because the Chinese residents saw that the British were not superior. The whole idea of a colony rests on the idea that the colonizing power has some sort of special powers and rights and authority that the local people don't have. Well, in just a very short time, another Asian country, racially very close to Chinese, managed to take over. So that was a huge blow to British prestige, of course, that they were able to take over. Now, subsequently, the Japanese ran Hong Kong in an extremely brutal, immoral way, so the Chinese very quickly turned against them. So they didn't welcome at all the Japanese rule. It meant that the myth of the white superiority was finished. So that's three years and eight months of Japanese military rule until the surrender of the Japanese in August 1945. British colonialism at that time is changing worldwide anyway. I mean, in 1947, of course, you've got Indian independence. Things were changing. So what happens to Hong Kong in terms of that sense of power and sense of colonial rule post-1945? Well, uh, this is a very good question. I mean, what was the reason for World War II? It It was fought to defend Poland, the sovereignty of small nations. So The question is, what about Hong Kong? Should Hong Kong be independent? Should it not be a colony anymore? Should the British leave? The British still had an imperial mindset. After the Japanese left, the Chinese and the British businesses reopened here, and the the British government didn't want to give up Hong Kong unless they were forced to. 
Because, I mean, it was a bit touch and go. Admiral Harcourt took a few days to get here with the, with the British fleet. I love those quirks of history sometimes, that, that it wasn't a given that uh, British colonial rule would continue here. Uh, of course, the, the Kuomintang army or the communist armies in China were enormous. So if Chiang Kai-shek or Chairman Mao had wanted to and had the ability to mobilize sufficient men, they could have, of course, occupied Hong Kong, taken it over. But it was the great good fortune for Britain that at that moment we're in a civil war. So for both the communists and the nationalists, the priorities defeat the other side. And Hong Kong is right at the bottom of China, you know, a very remote area. So neither uh, President Chiang or Mao Zedong had this idea at that, at that moment. Was so there any time over the ensuing decades where there was a possibility? I mean, I know that there was, uh, historically here, there was sometimes the fear, of course, that they would be taken over by the communists or the water would be cut off. So there was always a, a sense that Chairman Mao and the communists across the border. But do you think that there was any sense ever that that was totally real, a possibility? Well, of course, it was always a possibility because physically they could do it, especially after the communists had consolidated their power and consolidated the PLA and based soldiers all over China and based soldiers in Guangdong. Of course, this was a possibility. But Mao never, never did it. Even after he'd won the Civil War and he had consolidated his power, he, he didn't take Hong Kong. And even 1967, during the riots, he didn't want to take Hong Kong either. Why not? Well, I think... His view and that of the nationalists is that uh, Hong Kong served China in many, many different functions. And so it benefited China to have this port, this international city on the edge of China. And China is an enormous country, so one more port doesn't make so much difference. And so the calculation was always, let's allow it to exist. But as you say, China always had the ability to take it because if it cut off the water, cut off the food supply... I mean, Hong Kong would not have survived for very long. Yes, isn't it interesting that uh, you had this small area, I mean, obviously a very expanding population. Post-Second World War, the population would have only just been about 500,000. That increases very fast to 1.5 million as people return, as the population grows. And then, of course, it becomes uh, far bigger. You can add another couple of million uh, with both uh, political and economic refugees after the communist revolution in 1949 so you've got this burgeoning population you've got a lot of social ills that come with that you've got initially people grateful for their safety but they're living in shanty towns and we've then got children growing up without a proper access to education a proper access to housing so do you feel that when we look at 1967 that that was partly the social ills of colonial Britain or was that more looking at the Red Guard of communist China or a mix? No, I think the British government here did a very good job because, as you say, this sudden inflow of population and whether they, where, where are they going to go to hospital, where are they going to be educated, where are they going to live, uh, I think the British government did an extraordinary job to build large amounts of public housing, build an education system, build a health system, and there was this huge influx of money and entrepreneurs from the mainland and they re rebuilt the factories that they'd had in Shanghai and other places, they re rebuilt them here. So the Hong Kong economy grew very rapidly and benefited from the fact that China was closed, that China was a communist, self-reliant economy, it, it traded very, very little. So all this 
factories that had existed before in China that exported, they now moved here. So was the border really completely closed? But what about the water issue? Well, no, the water continued to be sold because that made money for China. But Chairman Mao closed the border in November 1949. And friends of my mother-in-law and, and other elderly people I've met said that they wanted to go back to see their hometown and their relatives, but they couldn't. He closed it because he, he wanted to consolidate his power, build this new communist system... And Hong Kong was seen as a possible source of revisionism and capitalism, so it had to be shut off. So post-1949, so you had families that decided to flee here, but if they left, say, like, elderly parents who couldn't travel or other members of their extended family behind, that was that? That was the equivalent of North-South Korea these days? Yes. Now, later, the border wasn't quite so hermetically sealed, and my mother-in-law's told me many stories of going back to her home village and she says they used to wear a lot of clothes and when they got to the village they took off all the clothes well almost all the clothes and then left them and they would take uh, vegetable oil they would take uh, food and they would bring it to their relatives but they were very uneasy because the communist government was very uh, xenophobic and very anti-western so if you went would you be able to return to hong kong so after a few years, they stopped going because they were afraid that they wouldn't be allowed to come back. So uh, there was a period of about 30 years in which she never was able to go back. So for many people, once they'd come to Hong Kong, that was the final decision. They, there was no return. Well, of course, when they came, they didn't know that. And many people had to take this decision very quickly without knowing what the future was. After the communist rule began, they decided that they didn't want it. Didn't want it, so they came later, and they, like Li, Li Kaohsiung, you know, he swam over here in his underwear. Is that right? Well, I think many people swam in their underwear, but uh, I, I think that this is just one of the many rem remarkable stories. I mean, because it was illegal, so he couldn't uh, take a train or take a boat. You had to do it, you know, at night time. You, you couldn't carry anything, so he just... Highly dangerous, too. Highly dangerous. Uh, you could be caught by either side, by the soldiers of either side. You could be attacked by um, sharks. So those are the many refugees that came to make Hong Kong their home. So for his own reasons, Chairman Mao Zedong decides not to invade Hong Kong. During the 1960s, you have uh, typhoons, water shortages, landslides. There's a lot going on in the 1960s and of course in 1967 50 years ago there's then the Hong Kong riots These were similar to what was going on in the mainland in that they were people on the street protesting there was a total of 8,000 bombs left, uh, 15 people were killed including 10 policemen and many more people were, were wounded so the British government had to make the decision here is this uh, a rebellion backed by Beijing, an attempt to take over Hong Kong? Or is this a local disturbance which we should put down? And the British decided the second, that this was not uh, an attempt by Beijing to take it back, 
So they handled it as a public disorder and the police performed very bravely in controlling the, the rioters and the mass of the population backed the government and the British government realised gradually that this was not a Beijing initiative because the water and the food continued to arrive. There was no demand to hand Hong Kong back. So this was an initiative of leftists in Guangdong or in Hong Kong to imitate what was going on in the rest of China, but it wasn't a policy by Beijing to take it back. And at that time, the same thing happened in Macau. The Portuguese said to Beijing, OK, do you want to, us to give you Macau back? And they said, we don't. You keep it. So that was the clearest sign that uh, Beijing didn't want to take it back. So I think the British authorities here emerged with great credit from their handling of the, the riots. It's interesting, though, isn't it, when we look at uh, initially post-97, when you have Tung Chi Wah take over as uh, chief executive, that uh, a number of people then receive, like, the gold Balhinia. Mm. Um, you know, you have also Chung Yok Sing's, the former LegCo uh, chief's brother. Mm. Um, he later would become, I think it's Home Affairs Secretary. Mm. What do we call it? Is it Home Affairs? Yeah, Secretary for Home Affairs. Mm. Um, now, he was a, a key rioter or he was a key opposition to the british government well yeah because this shows up the, the contradictions in the communist camp which is that at that moment it was the quote patriotic thing to oppose british colonialism and to go and demonstrate and riot against the british led police force um but as, as we said this wasn't actually what beijing wanted now, 1967 and the riots that ensued, that must have really shaken up the British government. It even shook more wealthy Chinese because they thought this means that Beijing could take over at any time, the British might leave, who knows what's going to happen. So that was one of the first large migrations of wealthy people. Property prices slumped, and that was one of the, the times when Li Ka-shing made a very smart move and he acquired a lot of properties at a very cheap price and the properties later then became extremely valuable so yes it was a huge shock and for the British too what are China's real intentions uh, what should we do but as I say they made the dis determination that Beijing didn't want Hong Kong back immediately so they held on but of course if you're living here especially if you're a wealthy person or a capitalist or you're a you have links to the Nationalist Party in Taiwan, of course you were very uneasy. So some of them decided to liquidate and emigrate. So we have the riots in 1967. When did it become, you know, the date of 1997, the, the looming handover? When did that sort of enter the Hong Kong psyche or business people get concerned about what that would mean? Well, I think we can say this began in the 1970s and this was primarily a concern for people in business. Uh, lawyers, uh, uh, bankers, property owners who were buying properties in the new territories and they were developing them and they were investing heavily in them and the question is what happens in 1997? Do I remain the owner of the property? Uh, does the property revert to China? So it was they who started to press the Hong Kong government to get some clarification of this question. So that's how it began. I think, I think the average Hong Kong person was not concerned about it because it was, it was too far in the distance. Yeah. You came here in 1978, Mark. So what was your awareness of 1997 at that time? Well, this may sound silly, but my first night I was here in the Hong Kong radio and I met a, an expat who'd been in Hong Kong for 30 years. And I said, have you bought a house in Hong Kong? 
And he laughed at me. He said, what a ridiculous question. Of course I haven't bought a house. I said, well, you, have you not bought a house anywhere? He said, yes, I bought one in Malaga in Spain. <laughs> and I said, why is that? And he said, well, none of us expect to stay here. We're just here, we earn our money, and then we buy somewhere elsewhere. So the view of the expats at that time was, yes, that Hong Kong is only a temporary place, and be it 1997 or even earlier, um, you know, the Chinese will take over. So, so you, you, mustn't, you mustn't put money here because you won't be able to keep it. So that was the view of the expats. I mean, how, how wrong, <laughs> of course, they were if they bought properties at that time how extremely wealthy they and their children would be today. The population of Hong Kong moving forward, I mean, that's, you know, there would have been many, two-thirds of the population would have had either been refugees themselves or were descended from refugees. So in that era, would people have already been starting to think, do I stay or do I go? If I want to go, what sort of passport do I need? Where can I go? Is it just a financial investment in Canada? or Australia? Um, was there some, a sudden surge of people learning English? Yeah, I think uh, Hong Kong has always been a very mobile society. You're right, you're, you're, you're a, a refugee, you're a child of a refugee. And Hong Kong has always had strong links with Chinese communities abroad. People have always emigrated from Hong Kong. That's not a new phenomenon. The other thing is that most people who came in the 50s and 60s were extremely anti-communist, very, very suspicious of the communists. And many believe that sooner or later the communists will take over here. And if they take over, what happens then? Do I have the right to my properties? Will I be allowed to travel? Will I be allowed to keep my money? This was in the, the mind, mind of them. So uh, many people had the idea that, uh, yes, you should have a, another plan. So you should have a passport, a property, or an exit plan in, in another country. So that was well before the concern about 1997. So how did the British government react to that, or the, the British colonial gov government in Hong Kong? I mean, were there people saying, you know, I'm a British subject, am I entitled to a British passport? Well, this is another huge issue, because at this time, we're now speaking in the 70s and the 80s, there are about 3 million Hong Kong people who have British passports they thought they had the right to live in, in Britain. So if something bad happens here, then th they can leave and, and, and emigrate to the UK. And then the UK passed these two very important nationality laws, 1971-1981, which excluded the Hong Kong people. It, it made the right to reside dependent on your race, on your ancestors. So, for instance, if you were in the Falkland Islands or you were in Gibraltar, you were allowed to reside in the UK because your parents or your grandparents came originally from Great Britain. But that didn't apply to Hong Kong people you know, who were born here of, of Chinese parents. So that removed for Hong Kong people the possibility of going to live in the UK, which meant that if they were looking to go abroad, they had to find somewhere else. So it was Australia, Canada, USA, New Zealand countries that accept immigrants. What was the reaction to that here? Well, I, I think most Hong, Pe Hong Kong people, given the choice, w would not choose to emigrate to the UK because uh, of the climate, because of the food. You know, the, these other countries are larger, uh, they have more chances for economic development, better climate. But 
from the moral aspects, of course, this is a very big question. So I remember when I came here, th this was the main issue, the moral question. How is it that you can disinherit Chinese people, but you don't disinherit the whites who are in these British colonies or former colonies around the world? That, that was the, the question. Another question was that uh, the, Hong Kong is likely to be handed over to a communist government and Britain is handing over British citizens to a communist government and uh, th that of course is a big moral question too Next week Mark continues his look at the agreements and definite disagreements in the run up to the handover and how then British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and last Governor Chris Patton angered Beijing Some Hong Kongers also provide me with their memories of handover night Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>